Well, again, good morning. Uh, welcome to Grumlaw. We are so glad that you're here today. Honestly, thank you for braving this incredibly cold weather. I'm surprised y'all made it inside. I mean, we survived for our first storm, and we made it all the way to like mid-January until we actually got a storm. Some of you maybe get excited about that. I get bummed out about that. If it's going to be cold out, we might as well have some snow on the ground. So I, I was more than ready for this. But anyway, uh, we really are so glad that you're here today. Uh, I, I say that all the time when I get up here, but I promise I really do mean it. And uh, we certainly don't take this for granted. Every single week, uh, there are people that come walking through our doors for the very first time. So I promise you, if it's your first time, one, we're not going to like ostracize you, make you stand up or anything like that. But I'll also tell you, you're not alone. I, I guarantee you that there are other people in this room that are also walking through our doors for the first time. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, I, I'm smart enough to recognize this, that some of you that are here for the first time, you want to be here. You were looking forward to this. You couldn't wait to walk through our doors. Others of you, you basically got forced into showing up here. You were bribed maybe into showing up here today. I see some of you turning your heads. Don't tell who that person is, okay? Just keep focusing forward. Uh, but regardless of why you are sitting here today, regardless of whether you want to be here or not, I I'm just honestly happy that you decided to walk through these doors and you're sitting in the seat that you're sitting in this morning. Uh, and I'll tell you, I I'm pretty confident that by the end of this, it, it probably won't be nearly as bad as you maybe dreamt it up to be in your head. And, and maybe, just maybe, this might be a place that you continue to come back to a place that you continue to kind of ask those questions that I think we all have circling around in our heads about spirituality, about faith. And so that's, a, that's our hope and that's our goal that you'll keep coming back and exploring what it actually means to have a relationship with Jesus. Now today... Uh, is a pretty exciting day around here because as you can see, we're starting this new series again called Brand New, Brand New. And it's not because we ran out of creative titles and we're just calling things brand new from here on out. Uh, the title of that series, I promise, will make sense here in, in just a little bit. But, but I have been so looking forward to this series and I'm not just saying that for the sake of like unnecessarily hyping it up or because it's the first week. Uh, for the next five weeks, I, I'm really, really excited for the journey that we're gonna be going on here. And, and I'm confident that, that if you stay in tune with us, that you pay attention here for these next five weeks. I really want to beg and implore you, do everything in my power to try to get you to come back here for these next five weeks. Stay in with us here. Stay engaged for these next five weeks. If you do, I promise that one, you'll learn a little bit about this guy that, that we call Jesus, that you know, we definitely talk to uh, and talk about from time to time around here. Uh, but maybe even more importantly for the context of our conversation here over these next five weeks, you're going to learn a whole lot more about what this movement called Christianity, about what the Christian church was supposed to be all about. And some of you, I'm confident that as we go through this content over these next five weeks, that some of you, uh, you're going to get defensive. Uh, this is going to be unnerving. This is going to be unsettling even for some of you because of what you grew up with, because of the way that you used to do church and these sorts of things. But again, I'm begging you, stay engaged with us here for these next five weeks. Uh, it'll definitely be worth your time. So everybody promise they're going to be here for the next five weeks. Everyone nodding their heads. Okay, you just made a promise to a pastor, so you better do it. Otherwise, something awful might happen to you. That's a joke, okay? I promise I'm kidding here. Some of you are like, my goodness, that's why I didn't want to show up here today. That's a joke. Uh, you might have noticed, uh, even if this is your first time with us, and maybe particularly if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, that we do church maybe just a little bit differently around here, that we do church maybe a little bit different from what you grew up with, from maybe, you know, what, what those couple memories are. Maybe if you didn't really go to church that often, but those couple memories when you did decide to step through the doors of a church. You won't find any stained glass around here. Uh, you're not going to find any hard wooden pews that are like a thousand years old and are really, really heavy. There's no hymnal books in the seats in front of you. There's none of those little golf pencils for you to doodle with. 
with on the offering envelopes. All of those things we've kind of stripped away. And in a lot of ways, we, we did that very intentionally so. Even if God ever gives us our own building, which we're hopeful will probably happen at some point uh, in our existence, again, we're not going to put in wooden pews. We're not going to put in the, the stained glass because we work really hard. In fact, it's really one of our driving behaviors behind the scenes. We work really, really hard to create an environment where anybody feels comfortable walking through our doors. Where even more than that, where all of you would feel completely comfortable inviting anybody else, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. You would feel comfortable inviting anyone to walk through our doors. And so again, we've kind of intentionally stripped away all of that stuff. And the truth is, and hopefully this isn't news to all of you, we didn't invent this. This was not our idea to come up with this kind of new way of doing church. In fact, about 20, 25 years ago, there's this whole wave of these new leaders and these new pastors that kind of started sprouting up all over the country that decided they wanted to do church differently, that they wanted to strip away kind of that old traditional stuff and create environments where, again, anybody felt comfortable walking through the doors. And so you began to see churches pop up at places like strip malls and, and movie theaters and schools. I mean, some people were stupid enough to start churches right next to athletic clubs and conference and banquet centers. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. And gone were like kind of these denominational lines that we are used to. No longer, honestly, these new churches that pop up, you don't see Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran kind of attached to them. They all wear the label of non-denominational, which ironically enough has kind of become its own denomination because so many churches label themselves as non-denominational. No more choirs, no more pulpits. The, the, The guy that's talking up here no longer wears like these big weird robes. All of you guys, you should be excited about this. You don't have to wear a tie to church anymore. Thought I might get an amen for that. Ladies, this may be even more exciting. You don't have to wear heels. You don't have to wear, wear those shirts that have like built-in shoulder pads. No longer do you have to wear those mothball-ridden clothing that you don't really like. You just get to show up here and whatever you like. In fact, we encourage you to do so. We just say, kind of come as you are. Now, some of you, you take that a little bit too far. I'm pretty sure you just kind of roll out of bed and then you're here. At least stick a toothbrush in your mouth because your breath is horrible. You get the idea. So much has changed. And, and probably to much of none of your surprise, I, I actually think that it's a really, really good thing. It's not that there was anything wrong with that more traditional way of doing church, but I think a lot of times it got in the way of people even giving church a chance. But with all that change, with all this new stuff, with all this progress that we've seen over these last 20, 25 years, and this is really what we're going to be honing in on here over these next five weeks. We are still holding on. We are still holding on to things that hold us back. We are still holding on to things that ultimately hold us back. And I'm telling you, if you have ever been turned off by the Christian church, if you've ever heard the term Christianity and simultaneously thought, ugh, if you've ever been turned off by somebody that wears that label of Christian, if you've ever had a bad experience with a Christian, then this is the perfect series for you. Because as we are going to discover together, most of the things... Most of the things that you resist about church are things that the church should resist. So if you've been zoning out here, you haven't been really paying attention, let this set in here for a second. Most of the things that you resist about church should be things, are things that the church should resist. Think about this. From an outsider's perspective, when they hear the term church, when they think of the Christian church, what what, what comes to mind? When they hear that term church, I think most people would universally agree that this is probably a good definition. It's a community of people who follow the teaching of a man sent from God to explain God and to clear the path to God. So as I look at this, what's wrong with that? Why would anyone find this to be resistible? 
Why, why would anybody look at this and oppose this? Why would anyone find this to be at least the, the slightest bit controversial? In, in fact, Jesus' teachings, they were so simple. In fact, Jesus really only gave one command and he just applied it in three different ways. He said, love God, love one another, and love your enemy. That's it. Love God, love one another, and love your enemy. What is wrong with that? I mean, seriously, who would find this? to be the least bit controversial. Why would anybody oppose that? For the first 300 years of Christianity, for the first 300 years of the Christian church, and, and if you don't believe me on this stuff, go look it up for yourself, I promise you it's the case. The only reason, the only reason that Christians were persecuted was because of their loyalty to Jesus. It's because they swore allegiance to Jesus as opposed to the Roman Empire. They swore allegiance to Jesus rather than Caesar, rather than Nero, but it had nothing to do with them being weird. It had nothing to do with their exclusivity. It had nothing to do with them being hyper-judgmental. It had nothing to do with these strange values, none of that. No, they simply said that Jesus was king in a society that already had a king, and so that didn't play very well. Now, the reason I bring all this up, and... <laughs> This is crazy. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be pretty amazing if the only gripe that people had with Christians was their loyalty to Jesus above all else? I mean, they're great neighbors, they're great coworkers, they're great friends, they're great family members, they're great spouses, they're great parents, but, but they think Jesus is God. And ugh. I just can't get behind that. But I'm telling you, in my experience, and maybe I'm just speaking from personal experience and maybe I'm living in a bubble, I have never heard anyone, not once, I've never even heard somebody so much as allude to this, that the reason that they dislike Christianity, that the reason that they don't want to be associated with the Christian church is because they, because they exclusively follow Jesus. Never heard that. I've heard a lot of other reasons, but never that. This last weekend, as, as Jason and Laura mentioned, we celebrated our one-year birthday, our one-year anniversary here at Grumlaw. And it was, gosh, it was so fun. I mean, we had 12 people go public with their faith. We had Harry and Lloyd ride around on a mini bike. That actually happened. We had a pizza party after. I mean, there's so much fun stuff. One of the things that we had going on, too, was we had a, a special guest musician, a guy by the name of Tejian, who's actually been here a couple times, super, super talented young man. Uh, and he came up actually on Saturday night. He lives down in Highland Park, right outside of Detroit. Uh, and he came up and stayed the night with my wife and I. I've known Tejian now for probably, gosh, like four years uh, and had the chance to really kind of pour into his life. And he's poured into my life more than he knows. But anyway, he calls me on like Friday and he says, hey, do you care if my cousin Calvin comes with me as well? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's fine. Calvin can come too. I'd met Calvin a handful of times uh, at that ministry down in Detroit called 323. And so he said, okay, we're both gonna come. So my sister was gracious enough to go pick him up Drop him off at our house, had a fun time on Saturday night. Then Sunday comes around and goes, and they hung out at, at our house for a couple more hours. And my dad came over that afternoon, and he asked Calvin, he said, hey, Calvin, what did you think of Grumlaw? And he was dead serious. He looked back at my dad and said, that is the best church on earth. He really thought that. Some of you might think that. I mean, that's really flattering, but I'm like, man, I need to get you out more, right? Like, I mean, he was dead convinced. He went on to share all these things that he just loved about this community. He shared so many things about you and how welcoming you all were to him. I mean, he just went on and on and on and shared all these things about why he loved this church. And my dad then asked him the follow-up question. He's like, would you like to go there every week? I don't think he recognized what he was asking. It was like this hypothetical, if you could go every week, would you? He took it as like, oh, you're gonna start picking me up every Sunday. So my dad kind of had to quickly backtrack 
back in that moment. But he looked back and he was like, yeah, I would like love to be there every week. Like if that place was even remotely close to his house, if Grumlaw was even, you know, miles away, he would walk to be here every Sunday. Even in these five degree temperatures, I'm telling you, he would have been here. And as I reflected on that, and, and one, I got excited because you know, like, wait, what a flattering thing to, to hear from another person, you know, say that about the church that, that I have the privilege of leading. But as I sat there and I processed this more, and as, as I was preparing for this talk, this question kind of came across my mind. It's a question that I want to pose to, to all of you. Why doesn't everyone attend church? I mean, why doesn't everybody want to show up to a Christian church on a Sunday morning? Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community where, where we so readily forgive one another? Who, who wouldn't want to be a part of a community where we're so exceedingly generous with one another? Who, who, who wouldn't want to be a part of a community where we love each other so well, where, where, where people are, based, are, are loved and accepted, not based on the circumstances that surround them, but because they are a child of God. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community where we are all kind of collectively taking our next step in this whole faith journey? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who who doesn't want their life to be better and to be better at life? I'm telling you, if you're skeptical of this whole Christianity thing, even if you never get to the point in your lifetime where you you believe in your heart of hearts that, that, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, if you follow If you embrace the teachings of Jesus, they will undeniably make your life better and make you better at life. It's why I believe that everyone, atheist, Christian, Hindu, Islam, everyone should at least read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read those four books that document Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, because I'm telling you, it's a fact. If you read that stuff, if you embrace the teachings of Jesus, they will undeniably, they'll make your life better, and they will absolutely make you better at life. And who doesn't want that? So back to the original question, why doesn't everyone go to church? What is it that makes the church so resistible? How is it that so many people have so many negative things to say about the Christian church that have nothing to do with the exclusivity that Jesus is Lord? What happened? Because I'm telling you, in those first, in those second, in those third centuries, this wasn't the case. The only thing that people resisted about the early Christian church was the fact that they claimed Jesus was Lord. And here's what we are going to discover here over these next five weeks. That's why, again, I am begging you, keep coming back. Stay plugged in here for these next five weeks. The fact that the church has become so resistible has nothing to do with new things being added in. But instead, old things that have been added back in. Now, to better illustrate this and make sure that y'all are, are all tracking with me this morning, uh, I want to introduce you to something that, that we're going to continue to revisit here throughout this series, and we call this the, the temple model. Now, the temple model represents all ancient religions. So we're talking ancient Babylon, we're, we're talking about you know the Persian Empire, ancient Egypt, ancient Israel. But I, uh, ironically enough, um, the temple model also represents most of the religions that exist in our world today. Things like you know Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, uh, Islam, uh, Scientology, even some of the things that we would label as cults. I mean, they all, uh, all these things, whether we're talking about the Persian Empire or we're, whether we're talking about present day with Scientology, all of these uh, things that fall under this temple model, they have four components. First one is this, sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men, and sincere followers. Now, sincere, we could probably substitute for superstitious in some case, uh, in some cases, but we're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. But there's always sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men, and sincere followers. There's always some sacred building 
that houses some sacred text that is controlled by some sacred men and it is always men, it's never women, that then communicate to the sincere, sometimes superstitious followers how they are supposed to live their lives. And based on whether you do or don't live your life in a certain way, it's gonna determine whether or not you find yourself in the good graces of the God that you happen to put your faith in. And we see this all over the place. You take the Middle East, for instance. We, we, we see people committing these heinous, horrible acts that we can't even comprehend, all because sacred men who control these sacred texts said, this is the stuff that you have to do in order to get in the good graces of God. And we watch this stuff and we can't even understand it. But what we're going to discover here together is that much of this temple thinking is actually alive and well in the Christian church today. See, the temple model, it grants extraordinary power to sacred men in sacred places who determine the meaning of sacred texts. Anybody that can get up in front of a group of people and tell you, hey, based on if you do this or based on whether you do not do these things, if you better do this or you better not do that, and if you don't, you might find yourself in hell. You might find yourself in some form of eternal damnation. That person holds an extraordinary, an extraordinary amount of power. Now, now some of you might be thinking, because you're really paying attention, you're, you're glued in right now, and you might have even leaned over and said it to the person next to you, isn't this exactly what we do here? I mean, don't we gather at some sacred place? I mean, we know it's a conference and banquet center, but they do a pretty good job of kind of transforming this. It feels kind of sacred. And that doesn't some sacred man, typically Shay, jump up there and, and tell us what's going on in these sacred texts and how we should apply them to our lives. And, and you better do these things or, you know, you, you might find yourself outside of the good graces of God. I mean, isn't this exactly what we do? Isn't this the game plan for most churches? I mean, because you ordinary folk couldn't possibly pick up that book and understand what's going on in those pages without anointed people like me telling you, right? And we're going to see in this series, again, that even though the temple model has trickled into our churches, it should not be that way. And here's why. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end, as in the end, as in no more, the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. Everybody say that with me real quick. Entirely new. One more time like you really mean it. Entirely new. Very good. In fact, and we talked about this last week, in Jesus' final words to his disciples, these 12 guys that he spent virtually every waking moment with when he was here on earth, he told them, okay, he's like, okay, I got one more message for you. I'm gonna soon ascend into heaven. But he looks at all of them and he says, I want you to take this message. I want you to take my teachings. I want you to take this new movement to the entire world. I want you to take this to, to, to the ends of the earth. I want everyone to hear about this. this. This isn't just for the Jews. This is not just for the people of Israel, but this is for everyone. And thus signaling the end of the temple model for everyone. And it was the beginning of something entirely new. There would be no more sacred places. And you know why? Because Jesus would teach that no building, that no place that you ever enter into, that no piece of dirt that you stand on will ever be more valuable than the person that sits to your left or the person that sits to your right. Most people, people 100% of the time are more sacred than any place that you will ever stand in, that you ever stand around. 
There would be no more sacred people. Never again would you need to go to a person for them to intervene on your behalf. Done are the high priests. Done are these people that we have thought of in such high regards that we call anointed, that we, add, that we put these sacred terms to. Jesus would say, no more. You can go to God all on your own. There would be no more sacred texts. The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures would be fulfilled with a single verb. This was the beginning of something entirely new. It was a complete departure from the temple model. It was a complete departure from the old. See, Jesus, he predicted a new movement. One day, Jesus is traveling along again with those same 12 disciples, these guys that he spent so much time with up to an area called Caesarea Philippi. And as he's traveling up there, all of a sudden he stops and they're all looking at him like, What's he gonna do? Is he gonna perform a miracle? What's he gonna say to us? And he kind of ponders there for a minute and then he looks at his disciples and he goes, who do people say that I am? In in other words, what are people saying about me? They all think there for a second and they're like, well, they're saying a lot of things. A a lot of people are saying that, that you're one of those prophets that has been raised back to life. Some people are saying that you're Elijah. In fact, a lot of people are saying that. Some people are saying that you're even John the Baptist and Jesus sits there for a second, he thinks about it. And then you picture him and he starts looking at all the disciples and he goes, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter shoots his hand up. He goes, I know this one. He says, you are the Messiah. You, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus looks right back at him and says, you are exactly right, Peter. And he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, it's worth noting that a lot of people misinterpret this passage of scripture to mean that Jesus was communicating to Peter that on Peter, he was going to build his church. But that is not the case. Jesus would not be foolish enough to build his church on a sinful, ordinary human being like me and you. He says, no, I'm telling you that you are Peter on this rock, on this declaration that you have just made, that I am the Messiah, that I am the son of the living God. On that declaration, I will build my church. Now, it's a tragedy that this word church appears in any of our English texts, correct word to have been used there is this Greek word called ekklesia. And ekklesia literally translated means gathering. It means assembly. It means congregation. It means movement. And right here, Jesus is introducing the beginning of a brand new movement. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but because a German word got mixed in with our English text, rather than you thinking gathering, rather than you thinking assembly, Rather than you thinking movement, we all think of a place, but Jesus said, no, no more sacred places. I am going to build a gathering. I am going to build a movement and I will be with that movement. I will be with those people wherever they go. I am launching something brand new. Jesus also instituted, he instituted a new covenant. Covenant means arrangement, an arrangement with God. You used to need to somebody to go to God on your behalf, but Jesus said, no. Not anymore. God has opened the door for all mankind to be able to reach out to God directly because the final sacrifice for sin is about to be made known. In Jesus' final meal with his disciples, often referred to as the Last Supper, and some of the more traditional churches you may be entered into, there's always these paintings of the Last Supper where Jesus and his 12 disciples are hanging out and they're all like, staring at Jesus kind of in this strange manner. I I don't know if that's actually how it went down. But right after they eat dinner, Jesus says this, It says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new, there's our word again, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. To which all the disciples would have sat there and they would have nodded their heads, but they had no idea what in the heck he was talking about. They're like, new blood? 
why is he always talking about blood? What's with this guy, blood? Like, blood, does he look bloody to you? He actually looks like he's in really, really good health. But as they stood there, just hours later, and they watched him bleed to death on a Roman cross, it dawned on him, oh, that's what he was talking about. This is the final sacrifice for sin, and not just for us Israelite people, not just for us Jews, but the entire world, including me and including you. Jesus gave new meaning to the sacred text. He gave new meaning to the sacred text. Now, if you read this stuff for yourself, and again, I would really challenge you to do so. I hope that the only time that you consume scripture isn't just here on Sunday mornings, but again, take this stuff out. Go read it for yourself. We have free Bibles in the back. There's a U version, this app you can download. Just start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I promise it'll be worth your time. But if you read this stuff for yourself, if you grew up going to church, Again, we, we read this stuff and we don't really even give it a second thought. We just kind of breeze past this stuff. But I'm telling you, when Jesus would let these words come flying out of his mouth, I mean, the, the, the crowd went silent. It was the kind of stuff that when Jesus said these things, his disciples sat there and went, oh, you idiot. I can't believe you keep saying these things. It's so offensive. You are going to get us killed, Jesus, with your words. Have you lost your mind? People would have been appalled that he would make such declarations. He says at one point, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, to which the disciples sat there and thought, we thought he was going to say he did come to abolish them. He goes, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to which they went, That's worse. That's actually worse that he said to fulfill them. That was a staggering, staggering statement. Jesus claimed that the entire Old Testament, that all of the Jewish scriptures, and again, I'm not gonna assume everybody knows this, the Jewish scriptures, if you were to leave right now, go to a synagogue, pick up their Bible, and our Old Testament are one and the same. They are the exact same thing verbatim. And Jesus had just claimed in this moment that the entire Old Testament, that all of the Jewish scriptures were talking about him. The law leads to Jesus and ends with Jesus. The Old Testament, think of it as like a cocoon. And from that cocoon, the Savior was born into the world. And while that cocoon absolutely served a purpose for a period of time, it is now finished because Jesus has fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. He has fulfilled everything in the Jewish Bible. And Jesus says, hey, no longer do you have to follow 613 rules. That's what the Jewish people were trying to keep up with, and nobody could do it. Even the best of the best, 613 rules was an impossible standard. Jesus said, you don't have to do that anymore. In fact, you don't even have to keep the 10 commandments. I am going to make it so much simpler than that. Jesus instituted a new movement-defining ethic. Now, those, again, of us that grew up going to a church, again, we just breeze by this stuff. We don't really think anything of it, but I'm telling you, to the disciples, as they heard these things come flying out of Jesus' mouth, this stuff was significant. He says, a new command, a new command I give you, love one another. And they're going, that's not new. We know that we're supposed to love each other. But then he says this, he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And when Jesus said, as I have loved you, they all knew exactly what he was talking about. They understood that it was way bigger than a random act of kindness. They understood that it was way more significant than bringing a meal to a needy person because right before Jesus let these words come flying out of his mouth, he had knelt down and he had washed 
the stinky, gross, dirty, sandal-ridden, walk-around-all-day nasty feet of his disciples, of his followers. And, And as they sat there, and Jesus moved from man to man and began washing their feet, they would have been so incredibly uncomfortable that they would have been sitting there in that moment and just absolutely squirming because these were the same hands that had done so many great things. These are the same hands that were put on blind men's eyes and suddenly they could see. These are the same hands that touched Lazarus when he raised him back to life. These were the same hands that were placed on people who had been crippled for their entire lives and suddenly they could walk. These were the same hands that performed so many miracles. And he was now going to take those hands, these hands that seemed to have some power radiating out from them. He was going to take those same hands and wash their gross, nasty feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter's like, Jesus, no, there's no chance. And he's like tucking his feet away. He's like, I'm not letting you wash my feet. This is where I draw the line. I I can't let you do this. But Jesus looks at Peter and he says, sit down. I'm washing your feet. He did for them what they would have never been willing to do for each other. And he says, by this, this is how you are to love one another. And in those moments, as he's looking at his disciples, he goes, in those moments where you really start feeling like you're something special, And I'm telling you, you're going to be tempted to because when I leave this earth, I mean, people are going to elevate you. People are going to think that you are really a special group of people. I mean, Peter, you should see the monstrosity that they are going to build for you. When you start feeling like you are something really, really special, bust out your towel and start washing some feet. Remember that you will never be greater than your master. And I washed your feet. Jesus took this entire leadership paradigm and he flipped it upside down. When you're tempted to start thinking that you're one of those sacred men, that you're one of those sacred people, pull out a towel and wash some feet. And then he says to him, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, love, wouldn't you know it, would replace rule keeping. The vertical would now be measured by the horizontal. The evidence that you are a Jesus follower would not be measured by how often or the length of your prayers. The, the, the measure that you are a follower of his will not be measured by how often, by how infrequently you read your Bible, by how often you come to church, but by how well you love those around you. And, and then Jesus, <laughs> he goes on and he says something that again, we will never be able to appreciate just how ludicrous this statement sounded in the moment, just how incredibly offensive this would have sounded. See, Jesus gave new meaning to Passover. Passover was the most and still is the most important uh, celebration in all of the Jewish calendar. And I I tried to think of what would be the equivalent in our modern terms of of being as offensive as what Jesus said, again, back back all these years ago to his original Jewish audience. And I I don't think there's probably really a, a perfect equivalent, but best as I could come up with, it would have been like me, On December 23rd, we had two Christmas services here. It would have been like me getting up here and in dead serious, not a hint of joking inside of me, looked at all of you and said, you know what? God's been doing some incredible things here, right? And you guys would all said, yeah. Some of you would have been like, amen, right? And I'd been like, well, I got news for you. It's all because of me. God has actually not really been behind this thing. It's been all because of me. And in fact, God has worked in such incredible ways around here. In fact, through me and because of everything that I have done, no longer on Christmas are you to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I want you to start celebrating the birth of me. 
I want you to start celebrating the birth of Shay. I want you to read stories about Shay on Christmas morning with your kids. When you sit them down and, and, and you talk to them about what the real meaning of Christmas is, make sure that you tell them about me, okay? We're gonna sing some songs about me now. We ready? How many of you would have stuck around for that? This is what he did. He said, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which they're going, no, it's not. It's a loaf of bread given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they're looking at him going, Jesus, this has been going on for a thousand years. In fact, this has actually been going on for over a thousand years. This ain't about you. Have you lost your mind? Did you forget that you know, fairly significant event where, where Moses led the Israelites out, of, out from oppression, out from slavery under the Egyptians, you know, leads them out, you know, the whole Red Sea thing where God split that whole thing in, you know, in half and, and we will cross on dry land. Like, are you forgetting this stuff? Jesus, maybe the day after Passover can be your day maybe even the day before Passover, but you can't mess with Passover. You don't touch Passover. Jesus, you're screwing with something that, that, that can't be touched. But Jesus looks at all of them straight face and he's like, no, 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 seriously, when you think about Passover, oh, when you think about Passover, I want you to think about me. Again, the disciples in this moment were sitting there going, Jesus, we have been very patient with you. We, we, we have let you say some really offensive things. I mean, you have said some things that, that have almost in several occasions gotten us killed. But Jesus, you don't touch Passover. You certainly don't touch Moses. Moses saved our people. Who have you saved? Sit tight. You'll see. This was Jesus' way of saying, this isn't the continuation of something. This isn't Temple Model 2.0. This is something brand new. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the Temple Model and the beginning of something entirely new. No more sacred places. Because again, he would teach that no place would ever be more valuable than the people around you. No more special anointed people that we place on such pedestals that have to go to God on your behalf. No more inaccessible texts that those sacred men in turn control. And after the resurrection, wouldn't you know it, the church got off to an incredible start. But as we all know, old habits, they die hard. And some temple model thinking started getting mixed in with the new that Jesus introduced. Things that should have been left behind got blended in. And unfortunately, a lot of that temple model thinking is still here today. And it's the reason, it is the reason that Christianity is unnecessarily resistible. But I'm dreaming of a day. And I absolutely believe that we can be a part of a movement that again changes course. That we can reclaim the new that Jesus brought into our world, that, that Christianity, like those first, second, and third centuries, can absolutely again become irresistible. Let's embrace again the new that Jesus introduced into the world. I'm so excited to explore this with all of you over the, these next five weeks. And again, I am begging you, keep coming back. Invite your friends, invite your brothers, invite everybody that has a pulse. Make sure they're here. Make sure that you are here for these next five weeks. Deal? Done? Let me pray.